corners of the earth. Countless souls do not know about Jesus. And we can't ignore the need. This is the heart of mission. Missionaries, cross-cultural specialists, pastors, they can all help us answer this season's big question. What small role can I play in God's big world? Thank you for joining us. Grab a cuppa and strap in as we debunk, demystify, and de-stress the great challenges of cross-cultural mission. Hi, Mark Peterson here, Director of CMS, South Australia and Northern Territory. And this episode of the Heart of Mission podcast has a content warning. Yeah, we are considering the awful subject of the grooming and exploitation of young girls overseas. If this topic is close to the bone for you, please take care of yourself. Find someone with whom you can share your journey and your burden. And Lifeline, 1-800-RESPECT and other organisations are also there to help. We're heading to Southeast Asia. And I had such a great time talking with Maggie, one of our workers there, that I thought we've got to do this in two episodes, not one. We don't want to rush it. Maggie's involved in anti-trafficking work. And we'll get to some of the details of that work in the second part, in episode three. But in this episode, we need to hear a little bit about the problem. It's terrible. So many different ways in which young people, particularly girls, are exploited. And that problem is complex and systemic. There's no simple remedy. But that doesn't give us permission to do nothing or to say, implicitly of course, that these girls' lives don't matter. They matter. They are a long way away from us, but each of them, whatever kind of darkness they found themselves in, is made in the image of God and is precious to Him. And because He loves them, they matter. But can we go and help? What kind of person do you have to be to go and help? Maggie would say she's nothing special, though after you've heard this interview, you might disagree with her on that. What I'm sure you will see is the remarkable way our Lord has worked things together for Maggie and equipped her for what she's now doing. And this is the same Lord at work in you and me. I want you to hear Maggie's story of coming to faith through traveling the world. And I'd love you to hear her own take on what exploitation looks like in her part of the world. And what about the church and local Christians? What about the government? What are they doing about the problem? And do they need outsiders to come and help? Or maybe not. If you haven't already, it's time for you to meet Maggie. I'm delighted to have on the Heart of Mission podcast an old friend, a missionary of over 30 years, Maggie Cruz, it's great to have you with us. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the reminder of how old I am. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been great chatting with you over recent days as you've been with us here in Adelaide on the first part of a two-part home assignment. You're serving amongst girls who have been exploited and we'll come to that whole difficult area in a few minutes. I'd really like to just to wind back a little bit and think about your own faith background. How did you you come to be a Christian um, it, it was quite a long process in a way, wasn't it? And I think it started back when you were 16, I think you were telling me the other day, a friend died. What was the, what was the kind of kickstart of your, I guess, your search and your coming to Christ? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a process. It's been a long journey and I think uh, in the early days, back when I was an early teen, I had some some feeling that, yeah, God was out there but seemed very far away. Uh, and uh, I guess when this friend of mine died, um, she her family were very strong Christians and uh, the way they handled her death, I mean, they were overcome with grief at one level, but they had something. Uh, and I can remember writing in a diary at the time, I don't know what these people have got, but I think I want it. It was a very powerful um, hope that they had that went beyond even the tragic death of this young girl. But then you you were on a search, but your search kind of took you in a bit of a different direction from that family that had really kind of inspired you. And and you actually found yourself in India and in a, in a kind of a yoga space, a bit of Hinduism oh, in the background. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm sure there's a few people who'd like to know more. <laughs> okay. Well, um, once I finished school, I went to Melbourne uh, to do my training as a registered nurse. And I um, I tried visiting a few churches in this quest to have some sort of spiritual meaning in my life, but I had not had success at that point. And um, a girlfriend, a fellow nurse uh, at the hospital said, oh, why don't you come along? I do some yoga and meditation. It's really cool. So wanting to be cool, I went along <laughs> and, uh, and joined this group, which actually in hindsight turned out to be, uh, you know, a sort of guru worship, yoga and ashram uh, kind of place where where they were really encouraging people to look for inner peace and, you know, find the peace that dwells inside. And I kind of thought, well, I'm all in for this, so I went the whole hog. And when they said, oh, actually, to really get it to all come together, you need to go to India and meet the, the head guru. Uh, so off I went and lived in an ashram in India for several months. Um, but sadly, it all actually fell apart at that point because it just felt incredibly empty. I, I think I was I was wanting so much for it to work and yet here we were, all these basically rich Westerners sitting around in an ashram trying to find inner peace and ignoring what was happening outside the ashram gate and all the hungry, poor people in the middle of India. So it for me that kind of it blew it really. Um, the thing that was meant to make it happen actually made it fall apart. <laughs> mm. Now, many of us have been in a hotel room and we've opened up the top drawer next to the bed and we found the Gideon's Bible and we've, we've thought, wow, there's a Bible in our hotel room. I bet nobody <laughs> ever reads those Bibles. There's no point putting Bibles in hotel rooms, is, is there, Maggie? No, no point putting them in hospital lockers either. That's what they, I don't know if they still do that, but uh, back when I was working in Melbourne, uh, every hospital locker next to a patient's bed had a Gideon's Bible. And um, at one point I um, purloined a certain Gideon's Bible and took it home and thought, oh, maybe I can have a read of this. It was just a little New Testament and Psalms. And I tried to pick it up and read it every now and then and didn't make much headway but I didn't quite have the courage to throw it in the bin, so I just kind of kept it on the shelf. And then uh, as I was preparing to go on a backpacking holiday with a girlfriend through Asia, I thought, oh, well, if I run out of everything else to read, perhaps I can look at that. So I threw it in my backpack and uh, that's what happened. So over the ensuing uh, nearly 12 months, uh, every now and then I'd pick up this Bible and have a bit of a read. Uh, I particularly like the Psalms. I think the the very real messages in the Psalms of people yearning after God and searching and, and getting frustrated and being angry at God, they felt very real. And I thought, oh, you know, these people are a bit more tangible and real than than some of the other old Bible stories of Daniel in the lion's den or whatever. Um, so anyway, I kept on picking it up and putting it down um, and not really sure where, where to take it after that. 
Now, this um, this uh, backpacking trip around Southeast Asia, various countries and so on, I think you found your way to Hong Kong, didn't you? And there was a very significant moment for you in Hong Kong. Talk, talk us through that. <laughs> well, it was actually the, the very last day before I was due to return back to Australia. And uh, basically, we'd run out of money at that point. And my girlfriend said, well, I'm going to lie on my bed all day and finish my book. And I thought, well, I'll go out for a walk. So I wandered down um, the main road in Kowloon and stumbled over a very English-looking grey stone little chapel. Uh, And it was a Sunday morning uh, and it was free and cool in there. And I thought, oh, well, I could stumble into the church for a while and sit there and have a look. So that's what I did. And, uh, of course, uh, unbeknownst to me, there was a special outreach service and they were preaching on the prodigal son. And as I sat during that service, I realised that was me. <laughs> and by the end of the service, I was basically glued to the seat thinking, oh no, <laughs> now what do I do? <laughs> and uh, thankfully, a, a, a very interested old lady came up to me and said, uh, are you okay, dear? And I kind of said, no. Uh, and she said, oh, get the minister. Um, so the minister came along and uh, basically I heard and maybe listened to and heard for the first time the gospel and what the prodigal son really was about and that I had a decision to make uh, uh, that basically brought on a fairly serious bout of nausea because I thought, uh, I've got a decision to make but it's not really a decision. Um, you know, where else have we to go? <laughs> There's only one place to go. And they also set you up with a good idea for where to go to church when you returned to Adelaide, didn't you? So you were already... Well, very weirdly, this minister just happened to be a CMS uh, mission partner uh, and an international chaplain in Kowloon, Hong Kong. Uh, And he said, oh, I've got a good mate back in Adelaide when he found out I was from Adelaide. And he matched me up with uh, Ron Bundy, who was a pastor at Holy Trinity Church at the time, and said, here, this fellow will look after you. Go back and look him up. So I thought, oh, I'm cornered now. They know my address and they've, they've got me to, pinned down. So uh, the first Sunday I was back in Adelaide, I fronted up to Holy Trinity and uh, searched out Ron Bundy and, uh, of course, he welcomed me very warmly and got me started in a home group and got me coming regularly to church and uh, and introduced me to reading the Bible and, uh, and some Scripture Union Bible notes and a few things and started me on my journey of faith. Uh, and, and the rest, me. as they say, yeah. is history. The rest is history. <laughs> yes. And now, of course, you've you know, in the, even in what you've told us, there's just there's lots of different places in the world that you have found yourself at various various points. Um, at some point after that, you started on a few short term mission trips, and eventually you became a, I guess, a long term missionary. And you've been to on various long term mission stints. Uh, including considerable amount of time in Africa. Do you know how many countries you've actually been to on mission of some court, um, some <laughs> sort, I've maybe? I've never added them up, no. but it's quite a few. Yeah. yeah. Well, what are some of the highlights that spring to mind? Well, I think in the early days, um, I, like after I became a Christian, I, I felt quite strongly convicted that somehow or other this Christian thing had to impact my daily life. Uh, and I was a registered nurse at the time and thought, 
what does that need to look like for me? I, don't, I didn't really feel like I was a pastor material or a theological lecturer. I, went, I was a nurse. And uh, as I started to explore that a bit, I realised that, oh, maybe I can use my nursing skills um, to serve God somehow, somewhere. Uh, so I did a couple of short-term stints in Bangladesh and in Central Australia uh, and basically threw a bit of a fleece out to God and said, well, if you can get me through that and I'm still okay, then I'll think about a bit more seriously about going away long term, which is what happened. And that took you then to Africa. What were some of the countries you were in in Africa? Uh, I initially went to what was then Zaire. Now it's been renamed the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I worked as a nurse midwife and a community health worker there for about uh, nearly eight years. But of course, uh, that was during a time of civil war in the country. So uh, sadly, I had to get out of there. Uh, And I was a bit of a refugee in Uganda for uh, a few years. And uh, CMS very kindly said, oh, sniff around and see what you can find to keep yourself busy in Uganda until the war stops. Um, So I hooked up with um, some UK mission partners, actually, who were involved in an outreach ministry to street children. Uh, And that's, Uh, that was actually such a refreshing ministry. These kids are on the street with nothing, leading the most horribly, you know, deprived lives and yet they'd run in through the gate in the morning with a big smile on their face, so happy to see you and just longing to escape, you know, the misery they were in and it was was just a wonderful encouragement to me uh, and uh, and to work with those kids. They were so responsive um, and such a contrast to coming out from the war in Congo. <laughs> so, um, so that was my first introduction to working with really vulnerable children and their families in Africa. Mm. Now, you're presently working in a Southeast Asian country. A lot of the work you were doing in Africa was with young boys and now in your new context, a lot of the work is with young girls. This is a topic that grabs our attention, but it's also a difficult topic. It's a gritty, awful topic. I guess I want to dive straight into the whole exploitation question. Could you give us a bit of an idea of what exploitation looks like in your Southeast Asian context? Is it mostly girls? Is it girls and boys? What's going on and and what does it look like? Um, Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Um, It's a lot of girls. There are some boys as well, uh, of course, sadly. Um, And, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is uh, you're dealing with usually families who are at the very extreme end of poverty, highly vulnerable. Um, You know, let's not forget the genocide that is within living memory of still a large number of the population and uh, families have been torn apart and destroyed during the, the genocide. Parents have not had skills to be able to parent and care and nurture for their families. People's resources were completely um, ripped away from them during uh, that whole regime. So we're dealing with uh, very, very vulnerable families and their kids um, Usually it's a financial push factor more than anything. Um, You know, if you really sit down with parents, no parent wants to see their child exploited, abused, whatever. Um, But because of the dire situation they're in, they feel that they have no other choice. And so kids and families end up making decisions that in the end uh, lead to terrible exploitation of their children. So so just talk us through that. I mean, it's it's pretty gruesome, but... How does a family go from sort of saying, you know, I would never let my child be, you know, caught up in something like that to, 
a situation where their child is. How does that how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I you have to be really careful not to be judgmental because we don't know how we would respond if we were literally didn't have a know where the next meal was coming from. But, uh, you know, oftentimes the traditional uh, classic picture is that uh, a broker of some sort, some sort of sexual predator will come to a very vulnerable family, they will compliment their pretty daughter and say, oh, wow, you know, I run a fancy restaurant in the capital city, I'm looking for some waitresses, Uh, your daughter would be great, we could train her up, she could serve in the restaurant, there's live-in accommodation, All, all her needs are looked after. Would that be helpful? And, of course, if you're desperate with no money and someone offers you maybe even a bit of cash to help your daughter move and uh, and they're promising to feed her, clothe her, accommodate her and give her training, what's not to like? So these predators are, of course, you know, telling a stack of lies but they package it in a very attractive way to very vulnerable families who are not aware of the risks often. Sometimes they're aware of the risks or they have an inkling of risk and yet they're so desperate that they're like, well, maybe this is one of the good ones. We're not sure. Let's give it a go. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then it quickly spirals downhill to this girl actually being taken to some seedy bar or beer garden, um, serving drinks, and then very quickly progressing on to sexual exploitation through that. Mm. Oh, it's awful. And I guess also there's the, the – um, you were talking to me earlier about – the impact of devices and internet and um, TikTok and that kind of stuff. There's a there's a way that um, exploiters uh, get to people th- that way as well, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, sadly, work? during COVID, we've seen a really big upsurge in the number of uh, kids uh, exploited in that way. Uh, Pre-COVID, it was a much more face-to-face affair where, uh, uh, you know, someone would go to a local village and, and uh, identify young girls physically. Um, on TikTok, of course, everyone's posting up pictures and uh, it's not just TikTok but other social media uh, apps as well. They spot a pretty girl, um, they start engaging with this young person, giving them compliments, telling them they'd love to take them out, give them a good time, whatever. And these girls don't have any resource or knowledge on how to protect themselves and just think it's a naive, naively think it's a, it's a genuine relationship. And basically they're being groomed and they don't realise they're being groomed. And very shortly it turns from a conversation full of compliments and aren't you lovely and I'd like to be your boyfriend to start sending me photos and then those photos become more and more intimate and the next minute the girl's being blackmailed and she's in a corner. If you don't do this, I'll show your photos to others and uh, and then they're at the point where they'll do anything to protect that because it's just too shameful for them to consider. So it slides downhill very fast from there and they'll basically do anything. They'll then meet offline and then be physically abused as well. Now, how extensive is this? Are we talking about a small problem or a big problem? I mean, how's this look? Um, sadly, it is one of the countries that's right up there when it comes to the exploitation and trafficking of young people and young children and particularly young girls, um, both within the country uh, as well as uh, overseas. Like, So we deal with a lot of children who... Uh, go uh, to China, get traffic to China um, and, and sometimes to other Asian countries as well. Mm. 
Now, traffic to China, why, why might they get traffic there? I mean, is there anything in their history or their, the, the particular situation they're in that, that leads to that uh, kind of traffic? Well, I think the history, sadly, of China's one-child policy and the selective abortion of girl babies means that there's a huge, like literally millions of men these days who can't find a girlfriend or a wife. Um, and so all of the neighbouring countries around China... Um, there are very porous borders and uh, girls are moved across into China to provide, um, you know, relationships uh, and matchmaking uh, with, with men in China. Mm. Mm. Now, we are going to look in the next episode at what you're doing and the way in which you're, you're involved in, 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 I guess, the response to this. But just before that sort of step in the process, one more question I want to ask you about this child exploitation side of things and that is what about the authorities are the authorities do they do they see this as being a problem do they are they on board with trying to fix this or, or what's that look like yeah the government uh, is uh, very concerned about this and are very proactive in promoting um, anti-trafficking work they have a national committee to counter trafficking and are very actively engaged and uh, and we are registered with them and work alongside of them to support them in the work they're doing so um, they are wanting to combat this they recognize how destructive it is for young people and for their society in general um, so it's uh, it's really important that we're working side by side with them in, in our efforts. Mm. Now, next episode, it is going to be fantastic to hear a little bit more about what Maggie does, the kind of work she does with young girls and also those girls who are a little bit older and in a sense trying to make their way into a career that's sustainable and good for them. Um, but we do have to wait till next time before we get there. I guess I want to step back for a moment. You've already said, you know, this is a country that's been very significantly impacted by the genocide of 50-odd years ago. That's affected their headspace. There weren't many Christians at that time. I think when the when the genocide ended, there were less than 1,000 Christians, something like seven or 800 or so Christians. These days, I gather it's, it's more than that. There's a couple of hundred thousand, perhaps, maybe a quarter of a million or so. It's depending on your estimates. But just give us an idea, what's, what's it like for the church? Paint a picture of, of where Christianity is. Is that making any impact or is it way too early? Um, well, obviously the church is still very young. You know, you're talking first generation. Many people are still first generation Christians. Um, you know, most of the people that I know uh, have come from families where their parents are not Christian. Um, there's a couple who have got parents who were first-generation Christians. So it's still very early days. You know, you think about the church in Corinth <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, so the church is very young. It's very uh, still very untaught. Um, there's a great need for uh, for Bible teaching, for pastoral work and for the church to grow and develop and really contextualise what does Christianity mean in the context of working in a, you know, almost 90% plus Buddhist world and how do they relate to their neighbours and friends who are Buddhist and how do they do that? Um, how do they make sense of the gospel in the midst of their culture and the impact that their culture 
uh, has? Um, how do they relate to even to their own family who are Buddhists and want their, them still to attend all the family gatherings and the ancestor uh, worship and uh, special holidays and everything that, that happens? Um, so the church has, uh, you know, got some big uh, challenges ahead to, to work on all of these things and really make Christianity real for the population and, and find out how to best do outreach and how to be neighbour, how to show the love of Jesus in their context. Mm. And a context, I suppose, where they really need to demonstrate respect for the, the majority religion as well. And yet it is, you are free to be a Christian. Is that right? How's that all work? Yeah, so people are free to choose their religion um, and to practice their religion. Um, but obviously, when you're in a tiny majority, a tiny minority, um, that's very challenging um, and people need to be very sensitive. So, I think for many Christians, their faith is often quite private, very personal. It's something they do on the weekends, it's something they do on Sunday. It's not something they talk about necessarily. Um, but there are some remarkable exceptions in that as well, and people who are very open about sharing their faith and sharing God's word, uh, and that's also wonderful to see. Mm. So if we were thinking about um, what it looks like from a distance uh, with you know, the opportunities for Christians and the opportunity for witnessing for Christ, I guess there are different ways that we could do it. Some people might be thinking, you know what, I, I, just, I just think what Maggie's doing, even though we haven't really heard the detail yet, but we will hear that more next time, the idea of going and serving in a, a place where the needs are so gritty would really energise me. You know, what are the opportunities? Would you like what sort of people could find themselves potentially, you know, inquiring about the opportunities? Do you think? Um, I mean, really, the sky's the limit. I think um, you know any of the professional areas uh, there are needs <laughs> um, across the board. So whether it's uh, you know teaching, medical sanitation and water. There are all sorts of professional opportunities. There are business as mission type possibilities. Um, you know, there's also work within the church to support and encourage the church and train up pastors and uh, help them to do their job. There are certainly opportunities to train and to teach um, good biblical um, knowledge uh, and help them to have confidence to speak about their own faith. So I think people who are willing to go, who are willing to learn the language and the culture and really connect with people uh, and be able to serve uh, in their particular area of expertise, um, there are opportunities there. Mm. <laughs> yes, and I think what often happens when people uh, offer themselves for overseas mission is you never quite know what it's going to look like when you get there, do you? And, and the context that you've found yourself in is where you are one of a, a number of Christians in an organisation that the majority of the people in your um, team are actually not Christians, but there's an opportunity for you to influence, you know, within your very own team as well, let alone the girls that we'll come to next episode. But the, the team itself, you're, you're alongside others, you're in, able to, in a sense, shape the culture, even though you don't want to be saying, right, this is now a Christian organisation, anyone who's a Buddhist needs to dot, dot, dot. You're not doing that. But, you know, what's it like in your actual organisation with that mix and 
being alongside people of a different faith? Yeah, well, again, it presents lots of challenges. I think one of the the big uh, hangovers from particularly the time of the genocide is uh, trust. Um, and that's a really critical thing when it comes to relationships, work environment and whatever. Their trust was completely broken during the genocide, not, not just with the authorities and the population, but even family members who betrayed family members uh, and this type of thing. So building up trust, showing yourself to be trustworthy, um, upholding um, the high moral standards that, for example, that Buddhism uh espouses and actually living that out and being real about that and being honest about that in a very shame-based culture. Admitting that you've made a mistake is uh, a bit of a no-no. <laughs> so um, so showing people and role modelling how to do that in a healthy way and that it doesn't mean it's the end of the world um, and figuring out with people how to move forward uh, in difficult situations and confronting openly um, and sensitively when things need to be addressed, uh, all of those things can be used to help role model, um, you know, good Christian living and and do it in a way hopefully that is not uh, making them feel uncomfortable or putting down their own belief uh, and faith um, but showing that there is another way of doing things and creating a curiosity, I think, about Christianity. What, what is the driver for these people? What makes them do what they do? <laughs> the season we're looking at uh, the global church and you, and I guess from what you've been talking about over the last few minutes, there is a sense for people listening that, um, that there's, well, there's plenty there to pray for. If you were just to distill that, the, the prayer needs to, you know, two or three things that you'd want to encourage people to pray for the church? What, what do you think they would be? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> that's a big one. Um, I think that Christians would know how to sensitively communicate the gospel in their own culture. They're the best people who know how to do that, um, that there would be good, solid teaching within the church so that people can really stand stand firm on God's word. Um that people would live out their Christian faith day to day, and um, and I think live that out in a way that that models that even within their own family and work context, um, you know, it's it's difficult being a Christian. Uh, we really need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. do indeed need to be praying for the churches of Southeast Asia, but I'm sure you're also interested to know about the kind of work that is already being done. Part two of my interview with Maggie is not far away. What is the work she's doing? Is it helping? And what are the likely outcomes for the girls who come through Maggie's organisation? Do they even want to be rescued? And what about the message of hope through Jesus? Is there a way that Maggie can share Christ with those who need to hear? Stay tuned for episode three of The Heart of Mission. Maggie is going to answer these and many other questions. Now, you can partner with Maggie yourself. If you want to receive her partnership updates via email to enable you to pray for the work she's doing, or if you're in a position to be helping her to remain on location through regular giving, just search for CMS S-A-N-T and search on Partner with Missionaries, look for Maggie, and then you can sign up or contact her. 
And to find out more about CMS, search for us on the web to find your local branch info and local social media channels. We work with churches to set apart, equip and support long-term workers who cross cultures to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for a world that knows Jesus. Jesus.